On today's episode of the Nerd by Word podcast, we have our final homework assignment of the school year before we hit summer break. Stick around. Welcome in, nerds, to another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. It is our third and final homework assignment of this school year. Uh, Dave and I have each given each other comic book reading assignments, 25-issue uh, runs for one another to read, and then we're giving our comic book book reports. But first, it's nerd news time, and Dave, the eagle has landed. We have Stephanie Brown on screen. Yeah, but the question is, did the eagle land or did the eagle take a dump on us? Is my question. <laughs> so the CW series Batwoman is set to introduce the first ever live action version of one of my all-time favorite characters, Stephanie Brown. Season 2, episode 13, I'll Give You a Clue, will see Morgan Cohan of Star Trek Discovery fame. I don't quite remember her on the show, actually, in some kind of guest spot, I guess. She'll be portraying Stephanie Brown. A preview image of the episode reveals Kohan in the role. Based on snippets of interviews and episode descriptions, uh, it appears she will be introduced prior to taking on the role of either Spoiler or Batgirl, but instead in her capacity as the daughter of the supervillain Clue Master. Now, as a huge fan of Stephanie Brown, I'm thrilled that we'll get to see her in live action. However, the initial preview image kind of left me cold. I'm unsure why Stephanie has strange writing all over her body in this preview image. It makes her look more like serial killer Victor Zass from the Batman comics than Stephanie Brown. She also is represented as a redhead, which makes her look more like a Barbara Gordon than Stephanie Brown, who was famously blonde. Finally, while I find Cohan to be overall a fine actress, various online sources indicate that she's in her 30s. Stephanie Brown has never really been depicted as a grown-up. She's almost always a teenager. In Brian Q. Miller's excellent Batgirl series, she was actually a freshman in college, so our guess is 18, 19 years old probably. And that seems to be, in regular continuity at least, uh, sort of the oldest that she's actually been shown. And I think it's pretty much an essential part of her character. So although I'm glad uh, to see Steph in live action, will this truly be her? Or is it just Stefan name only? I don't know. If she's not the never-say-die, optimistic, get-knocked-down-and-get-back-up spunky teenager, she's really not Stephanie Brown. Here's hoping they get her right, Chris. Yeah, um, I, I've made it very well known on this show, like my reservations with the CWDC-verse, and this doesn't really do a lot to sway me. I think, um, you know, the one exception... Uh, to that has been the first couple of seasons of Arrow before that trailed off. Um, and then, you know, uh, the few episodes I've seen of Superman and Lois, I, I, I've enjoyed a good deal. But other than that, it just seems like so starchy uh, and, and so kind of like cardboard. Uh, it, it feels very much like a, a TV adaptation and, and not really, you know, something that that's really in my wheelhouse. So, you know, and then you add to this, like, I just can't get over the fact that she has random numbers and and letters written all over her body. I don't know if they're tattooed or, or what. It kind of looks like Sharpie in this image. But and, and then, you know, just a, a you know, simple detail like, you know, hair color. And, and I believe the actress Morgan Cohen is at least another projects is a blonde uh, i don't know if it's a natural hair color or whatever but it, it just seems like really kind of going out of their way to be edgy um for whatever reason you know i haven't seen any of batwoman so there's not a whole lot of context that i can you know use to inform my opinion but this is just wild to me yeah it's it's there's some very odd choices going on there. And and the thing is, like, Stephanie Brown could very well carve out a nice role for herself 
in the Batwoman series. In fact, on that particular series, I think they could even go all the way and build up towards making her Batgirl rather than just spoiler. I think there's a lot of potential there for that. But man, if you're going to play this game, you got to get the character right. And I'm not convinced from what little we've seen so far, that they're even anywhere in the neighborhood. Now, maybe they get the portrayal right. If her character's right, I can forgive, you know, the change in hair color. I can probably even forgive somewhat the age. It wouldn't be the first time the CW had 30-year-olds playing teenagers. But ultimately, it's it's the character that really has to land. And if they don't get that quite right, then, you know, it's going to be a hard pass for me. Now, Chris... You are actually going to talk about another character that is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, What you got for us this week? So this is a character that I don't have a whole lot of experience with, but has kind of always fascinated me kind of on the periphery and and one that I've always been interested in to to explore further. We have a Red Sonja. Actress Hannah John Kamen has been cast as the titular role of, of Red Sonja in an upcoming film project that I didn't even know was happening. Um, Joey Soloway is directing the project and it's, uh, been co-written by Soloway and, uh, Tasha Huo, uh, the showrunner for an upcoming Tomb Raider animated series that I didn't know was happening. So like, we're just like swimming in content that I didn't even know happened. Now, in addition to what I think was a really underappreciated and underused role as ghost in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, a really underrated MCU entry, I think. Uh, John Common has um, also been the lead in the Brave New World series with, that uh, that I've been meaning to check out. Um, and uh, she's also um, been in a lot of different sci-fi projects, you know, particularly for the Sci-Fi Channel. So she's got a background in sci-fi, fantasy type stuff. So um just a background on the character red sonia was created by roy thomas and barry windsor smith for marvel comics uh conan the conan the barbarian uh in the early 70s um and it was an amalgam of a bunch of different characters uh from conan creator robert e howard um and the character became proved so popular got her own title and um you know has has bounced back and forth from distributors and publishers and is currently published uh, I believe with Dynamite Comics, um, Dynamite Entertainment, um, and has just been fiercely popular, especially in the cosplay world. Um, so this is something I, I had no idea, completely flew under my radar. And to see uh, a name attached of an actress that I, that I really enjoyed in the small snippets that I saw on screen, I'm super excited about. And I can't wait to um, to see more news come from this project. Yeah, so I'm psyched uh, about this casting. Hannah John Kamen's turn as the villain in Ant-Man and the Wasp was totally awesome. So I can totally see her pulling off uh, Red Sonja. Now, the character, obviously, as you indicated, has a really long history. But I am one of those fans of what Dynamite has been doing with the character in recent years. There have been some really neat takes. The wonderful thing about Dynamite is they constantly seem to be sort of reinventing, resetting trying different angles on the character. Gail Simone's run, for example, was absolutely fabulous. And if they base a movie on something like that, this could really shape up to be a sleeper hit. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this movie. I'm excited for the casting. I, I have high hopes that they're going to get this character right. Um, I just want, really want to see this movie. I'm very, very excited for this. Yeah, that's actually how it, it popped up for me. Um, if you're not following Gail Simone on Twitter, you're doing Twitter wrong, by the way. Um, so, like when this news broke, she was just she just erupted with joy on on the timeline. So, um, I'm super excited to to dive into those books. Uh, I have lots of things on my to read list, but I'm definitely adding that to it. Um, and I also as I've recommended on the podcast before, um, Dynamite comics, what what little I've read about it, particularly the Zorro uh, comics and the Zorro Django comic, uh, I, I really wholeheartedly enjoy taking popular characters that you didn't know had a comic in that case, and um, or at least from my perspective, and, and really kind of letting them run without like the pressures of being on the big two. So um, I'm definitely psyched about this and reading more. Yeah, here, here. I'm right there with you. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment. When we come back from our first break, our final homework assignment of the calendar year will be coming. (laughs) 
All right, welcome back. And for our Byword Big Talk segment today, we are doing our final homework assignment of the school year, comic book book reports. We have given each other a 25-issue run, um, run on, on comics that we enjoyed that we think the other one would dig and enjoy as well. Um, Dave, what did I assign you this time around? Thor, man. Jason Aaron's initial run on Thor, God of Thunder. All right, so this series ran from 2012 to 2014. As I stated, it it was 25 issues, and this is really kind of the precursor to the seven or eight year long Jason Aaron run. This really kind of set the stage. Um, the thing that really drew my attention to it was just like the hauntingly beautiful art of Asad Ribich, who is one of my all time favorite comic artists. I mean, um, even the reason that I'm I'm picking up the new Eternals book is because he's doing the art on that. Um, Dave, what did you like most about what you read? Yeah. So, you know, Jason Aaron's first 25 issues of Thor, God of Thunder, really, you know, as I was reading it, it it dawned on me that it has sort of three distinct storylines. The first one is, is the gore, the God butcher stuff, uh, and his attempt to kill all of the gods. Uh, then the second arc focuses on the return of the dark elf Malekith. And then the last arc is Thor going up against, uh, this corporation Roxham. Now, obviously, the whole 25-issue run was a lot of fun. I think Aaron really leans into the mythological and fantasy side of the character and does a lot less with the sort of superhero side of Thor that we're more um, familiar with from, you know, the comic books in the past. And I think that is a great approach to the character. It really suits him perfectly and i i think i i don't think i've ever enjoyed thor more than in this particular run and i really have you know dug the mcu uh thor interpretation but there is something really special about this i also absolutely loved uh the notion of the three thors so aaron tracks thor in three distinct eras in this run uh, on the one hand, you have the young, brash Thor, uh, sort of uh, in the 800s, uh, hanging out with, with Vikings all the time. Then you have Avengers-era Thor, basically the Thor of the present. And then uh, far-future Thor, who is uh, king of Asgard himself now. And even due to time travel shenanigans, the three actually get to meet and interact, which works fantastic because Thor goes through a a pretty big evolution over those millennia that he's alive. And so him kind of bumping up against his past selves is is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Even after that story wraps up where the three meet, I really like that Eren made sure to continue checking in with both both past Thor and future Thor throughout these 25 issues. So they don't, they're not a gimmick. They're not forgotten. And you get, you know, continuing adventures in all three of those eras, although the bulk of the book really sticks with present-day Thor. Uh, and I will also say that the introduction of, of, of the God Butcher is absolutely fantastic. And it's really got me psyched now for Thor Love and Thunder because, you know, obviously that, that character is going to pop up there. Uh, this really, really strong writing here as you have this this villain that really comes from tragedy and, and ultimately sort of develops into what he hates most. He sort of becomes his own worst enemy. It's riveting. Uh, and so, yeah, there was a lot to love about this run, Chris. Yeah, I, I particularly loved the intertwined, you know, narratives of those three you know characters, those three Thors throughout time and seeing kind of the character growth um, and the the beautiful storytelling that does, and that's probably one of my favorite aspects of this entire run because this this is just twenty five issues. This is just like the first course of this meal, if you will, and and he doesn't ever leave that he, up until you know, like his final four issues of his run are King Thor issues, and and that's how he bookends it. So it's just, it's just really beautiful, intertwined. I mean, and and uh, I think you read. Um, War of the Realms, and and they pop up there as well. It's another one of those shenanigans where they're all fighting together. So I really, really enjoyed that as well. Yeah, yeah, I have to agree. Uh, you know, the tie-in back to War of the Realms, actually, that that kind of primed me a little bit for this run, actually. I really enjoyed War of the Realms. Uh, probably one of the most enjoyable crossovers I've uh, read in recent years. So I guess that primed the pump a little bit for me to enjoy this run as much as I did. All right, Dave. So um, 
what do you think could have been better or what are elements of the run that you didn't enjoy as much? So out of those three distinct arcs in these 25 issues, I think the last arc where Thor goes up against the Roxxon Corporation is probably the weakest. The first two arcs were really strong and this one kind of paled in comparison. It does a good job of sort of reinforcing that Thor has a strong love of Earth, of Midgard. But other than that, it, it left me pretty cold, Chris. Well, well, you know what? That's not completely true. The arc actually flashes forward frequently to King Thor, and that particular storyline was absolutely fantastic. You have King Thor basically defending uh, a dying Earth from Galactus. And that's just awesome. Grumpy old Thor is a great character anyways. And seeing him fighting Galactus sort of one-on-one was was pretty awesome. Um, The other thing, which I think may just be a nitpick, is that during the Gore, the God Butcher arc, we never really get a chance to learn more about some of these other pantheons of various alien worlds. You know, Thor goes around and is investigating what's happening to these other gods from various other cultures. And you have these gods from like, you know, basically alien gods. And we see them sort of dead for the most part, but there's not really, you know, any chance to explore that a little bit. I think it would have been fascinating to learn more about them, to see Thor interact with him, to kind of establish what the relationship is between all these these pantheons of gods. I think that would have been a really interesting thing, a nice bit of fun world building that didn't quite come to fruition. Um, it's It's been a bit since I've read this. Did you meet the librarian who is like keeping all the records of all the different gods and pantheons? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I would have read an entire like mini series of like, you know, his record keeping. And then, you know, that would kind of lend itself into to these offshoots of different, you know, worlds and pantheons as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. So what surprised you the most about reading this? You know, my exposure to the Thor comics has been pretty limited, Chris. I, I read and enjoyed uh, J. Michael Straczynski's run on the character many years ago. I always had trouble getting into the whole Donald Blake, you know, Kane version of the character from the early days. So I guess what surprised me the most was just how much I enjoyed the book, how much it leaned into the fantastical, you know, the elves, the dwarves, all that stuff. I often actually, Chris, this is sort of my, you know, dirty nerd secret. I kind of struggle getting into the fantasy stuff sometimes. I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And oftentimes I I find fantasy not, not quite my cup of tea. I yearn actually to love this stuff as much as other nerds do, but I, I always struggle finding... Uh, I guess, an entryway into that. And I think this this Thor run actually did this incredibly well. And so I, I found myself liking it a lot more than I usually would. Um, here, it just worked, and I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree with that to a certain degree. Like, I, I, I love the idea of Tolkien, and I love the idea of Lord of the Rings, I still like it's such a daunting task. There's like there's so much text. Like it's it's just like I don't think I have enough time to dive in and completely devote to this the right way. And you know, for me personally, with my heritage being you know uh, partly Scandinavian, like Norse mythology has always been you know near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, the pantheon of 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 Asgard and and all of those tales has always been fascinating to me and I've always wanted to dive deep. That's why I loved uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla and exploring that. And, and I think it was, it was masterfully, you know, weaved throughout this run as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Dave, here's, here's a real problem with, with people that are coming into comics for the first time or, or trying to start a new run. What continuity or larger universe issues did you encounter? Shockingly few, actually, Chris. Uh, I found this to be pretty new reader friendly overall. Now, obviously, I, I had a little bit of you know general pop culture knowledge of Thor and his world, so I knew who Jane Foster was when she popped up briefly. Uh, I'm somewhat familiar with the Warriors Three and Sif. Obviously, uh, the book does a decent job, though, of sort of basically introducing who they are but not like you know through caption boxes but really through the dialogue and how the characters interact you get a really decent sense of of who these people are supposed to be the thing that threw me for a second although i think this actually happened during jms run 
was that Asgard was floating over like Oklahoma or something. I had completely forgotten about that. So when it popped up, I was scratching my head for a hot second. But yeah, other than that, I think Aaron's run doesn't lean too hard into like this whole overall continuity or even like other Marvel heroes or big crossovers. The whole connected universe thing is sort of on the side. He mentions the X-Men in passing at one point, and he is referred to sort of as the Avengers era Thor. But for the most part, you know, the only time that you really feel like this is some kind of larger connected universe is when he interacts with S.H.I.E.L.D. in particular. So I never really felt lost in this, Chris. Now, I know that you love uh, a strong female character, and you said S.H.I.E.L.D. What are your thoughts on uh, Agent Roz Solomon? You know, I- I'm very interested to see how that further develops. I know that, that you know, Aaron has a, a a much longer overall run on this character than just these initial first, you know, 25 issues. So I'm, I'm curious where he takes that character in the future. Uh, initial introduction i thought she was interesting but i didn't like that they kind of made it a running joke that everybody just keeps you know referring to thor as her boyfriend i thought that was kind of you know diminishing her as a as an individual character a little bit to kind of just say oh yeah that's thor's new girlfriend or something um i think there was a there's a really interesting character in there um it didn't help that she was most heavily featured in probably my least favorite arc out of the three arcs in these 25 issues so i'm just curious to see what else she's up to in in future issues so that that begs the very next question how do you think reading this text will change your reading choices going forward oh i think i've I've pretty clearly hinted at that i'm going to read more of aaron's thor run i really like his take on the character i loved war of the realms this seems sort of a natural fit for my sensibilities it's solid it's interesting it's complex and when juxtaposed with you know his past and future selves, I think Thor becomes a much more interesting character than he generally is portrayed as in the in, in comics I've read in the past. So, yeah, I think I'm here for more, Chris. I, I gotta tell you, um, so it, it's really funny, and I didn't want to put the cart before the horse, but the issues that you had with Roxxon kind of being a lackluster storyline in comparison to Malekith and and Gore. I think the Roxxon storyline is much better served during the Jane era, which you're about to embark in if you choose to continue this journey. Um, And uh, Agent Solomon is much better fleshed out in in the Jane era of Thor as well. So I think you're really, really going to enjoy both of those aspects. Yeah, that sounds great. Like I said, I'm I'm definitely here for more. This was shockingly enjoyable and much more than any version of Thor that I've read up to this point. So I'm here for it. All right, now to quote one of my faves, Michael Scott, now the turntables have turned. Ah, wicka wicka wah, let's do this thing. Let's go ahead and talk about Blue Beetle, Chris. Blue Beetle uh, was actually uh, introduced, uh, the the Jaime Reyes version, in the uh, Infinite Crisis crossover very briefly. And then John Rogers and Keith Giffen, but for the most part John Rogers, got to basically uh, run with the character for a solid 25-issue run. And this was Chris's homework assignment. As a huge Jaime Reyes fan and somebody who absolutely adores this particular run on the on the character and thinks it is still the defining run on the character, I'm just so very curious, Chris, to, to find out how you uh, felt about this particular thing. So, Chris, what did you like most about Blue Beetle? Oh, okay. So number one... Number one, overall, just absolutely thing that I adored. The costume design on this, and I know we've used the bleep button a lot. I'm sorry, we're going to have to use it here again. The costume design here was f***ing gorgeous. It's it's one of the most beautiful superhero costumes I've ever seen. I'm, I'm a sucker for black and blue, and it's just beautifully rendered here. So I, I absolutely adore the costume design. Uh, it, it's perfection for me. Um, It's no secret that I am a Spanish teacher. Spanish, uh, the language of Spanish is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, Latinx culture um, is is all the has been all the rage for me since I was like a ten or eleven year old kid, and I was first you know introduced to it. So being able to see uh, you know a Latinx character take the mantle of of a superhero. 
um, was super, super exciting to me. I, I also dug like how deeply nerdy and sci-fi it was. You know, I'm a big Trekkie, so I love a good sci-fi story. And I love that they lean into that in a comic book. That was super cool to see with the, you know, the extraterrestrial nature of, of the Blue Beetle uh, in, in this instance being something completely new. And, you know, he's the third individual to take on the title the moniker of blue beetle and yet it's it's not just like oh now we have a hispanic blue beetle so that we're just checking off boxes here um they made him his own type of character which i truly appreciated now i have to ask because uh, this is the comparison i always make i was a big fan of bendis on ultimate spider-man and when blue beetle was originally running under you know the penmanship of john rogers i always said that this is basically dc's version of ultimate spider-man you know the teenage hero coming into his own do you feel like that kind of comparison is justified not just in tone but in quality chris Dave, I think we just both have a type because I would totally agree with that assessment. Uh, we love that teenage superhero that the fake it till you make it, um, the quips and, you know, all of it, just like the sense of humor, uh, the the voice of that character is just, I, you know, I it, there were certain times of, of, of certain issues where I like, yeah, this is a Spider-Man book or this is a, a Batgirl Stephanie Brown book. Like, I, I, I really think that we have a favorite type of hero, man. I'm starting to think so as well, Chris. Now, what do you think could have been better about this run on Blue Beetle? So, you know how it is. It's impossible for for us to turn our, our teacher brain off. So, I saw some egregious Spanish errors while reading this. There was a <laughs> one particular sign that I tr- that I tweeted out that just, you know, I, I, I almost started like my body started locking up and seizing. And 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 I, I even like I, I just couldn't deal with it. So uh, the Spanish, um, I, I don't know, like what the consultancy uh, was for John Rogers, you know, himself, I assume not being of, of a, a Latinx background. Um, that was a little bit cringy. Um, some of the dialogue was very much a white guy writing, you know, Hispanic characters. Um, so I, I would be, I, I would also say the, probably the overarching thing that I enjoyed, um, but also what I would be interested to see updated now, this was written from 2006 to 2008 after 2007, technically, when Rogers left after 25 issues. So 2006, 2007, I thought it was very much of its era, um, you know, linguistically speaking, dialogue wise. Um, Also, you know, culturally, particularly the character of Paco is a little bit cringy in his just like kind of meathead, um, you know, very, very hormonally driven, I guess would be a a democratic way to say it. So um, I would be interested to see what this book would look like, um, you know, in today's time with, with, uh, you know, if not a Latinx author behind it, um, at the very least, kind of like, you know, an updated look on on the type of character. Now, see, that's really interesting um, for for a number of reasons. Uh, So one, the the book has been relaunched uh, since this particular run multiple times, and it never quite seems to catch on. Even though Jaime is an incredibly popular character, particular in um, you know, in other media, he keeps popping up in cartoons and the like. I think he was even on Smallville for crying out loud. Um, the the character himself is incredibly popular, but it seems like no writer has quite cracked that nut of, of making him popular in in the comics themselves which i think is absolutely fascinating but i'm i'm curious since you were talking specifically about the spanish if i remember correctly and it's been a hot second since i read this there was one issue that was mostly spanish i think it was the the family reunion issue did you see a lot of problems in that one as well i have that is i'm I'm about to read that one i have not read that one yet that is uh issue 26 um, and that is not written by Rogers, so I haven't read that one yet. That is the very next issue in the run. Um, so I, I'm re- reserving judgment for that one. It's, it's really interesting that you say that, how you haven't been able to like to crack the code. Because, you know, I this is my first exposure, at least I thought it was, my first exposure to, at least in the comics realm of John Rogers' work. And, um, 
you know, so I kind of did like a Wikipedia IMDb dive and I found out that um, he actually was like the screenwriter on and he, and he does feature a lot in, in screenwriting and comics is not the pr- uh, the primary medium that he works in, does a lot of screenwriting. He actually was the screenwriter um, on on Halle Berry's Catwoman film, which, you know, is is not one of the, the highest regarded. So it's just crazy how this works sometimes. Um, and, and, you know, we talked about Jason Aaron's Thor um, and, and I, you know, would do anything for this run on Thor, but what he's doing in Avengers right now, we've talked about this briefly. It's just wild. And yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, I can't, I can't get through an issue. It's just like, I have to take like a two week break before I can read even one more issue. And then, you know, with, with uh, Brian Michael Bendis is highly regarded uh, for, by both of us on his ultimate Spider-Man run. But after, you know, after ultimate Spider-Man, there's, very little uh, i do like his x-men but that was concurrent with ultimate spider-man but after that time there's not been an issue of a comic that 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 bendis has written that i've really enjoyed and i think you feel a lot of the same way yeah absolutely so it's just wild how how you kind of lightning strikes and then you you, you can't really find it again yeah yeah that that's that's a fact now chris what surprised you the most about blue beetle Probably just how much they leaned in, and this is one of the things I liked the most was how much they leaned into the, like. Oh no, I take that back. What surprised me the most was Peacemaker. How much I really enjoyed the character of Peacemaker, and how much I'm looking forward to uh, John Cena's uh, you know interpretation on the character, uh, James Gunn's interpret- uh, interpretation on the character in the upcoming The Suicide Squad film because this is the first time I've ever seen anything to you know as far as the peacemaker in a comic book and i thought it was really a fantastic portrayal really really interesting and and um there were certain tropey elements to it about like a gruff guy being an a, a reluctant mentor so there was some definite parallels to like you know logan wolverine and, and stuff like that but i i really enjoyed like the back and forth and and the mystery uh behind that also, I, I really also enjoyed, um, surprisingly, the fact that it took almost the entire run of 25 issues for Jaime to finally really crack the code of this thing that has embodied him. I think that while it has definite similarities to, you know, Peter Parker, Stephanie Brown type of characters that we love, I thought that there were some definite choices stylistically, plot wise, that were very different that I appreciated. The fact that basically everybody knows within his immediate inner circle, his secret identity right off the bat. I thought that was a very interesting choice. And I really enjoyed, you know, a shift in that. You know, usually you're having, you know, the teenage superhero having to sneak around mom and dad and hide the costume and all that. And I thought this was a very welcome choice, uh, a very welcome change, rather, um, to, to all of that. And then the fact that like he's doing all these things and he has this sentient being. Um, it's, it's basically like the symbiote, uh, you know, of Peter Parker. And it takes almost the entire run for him to finally crack that code. I thought that was fascinating. You know, it's, it's funny that you keep coming back to that crack the code moment because, you know, very rarely do my reading activities become loud. But that moment when he figures out that, you know, that the scarab what the scarab's name is and what that name means and everything, and he he cries oh, out man. for that scarab. Oh, I jumped up out of my seat and I was cheering. It was such a great moment. I th- I think the final three issues, like I enjoyed most of the run, you know, and it was hit or miss there for a while. Um, some of those tie-in issues kind of left me cold. But those final three issues, I texted you, but like those final three issues really sung completely. Absolutely. Yeah, it is such a fantastic climax. Now, what continuity or larger universe issues did you encounter, Chris? Uh, basically, the Infinite Crisis. Uh, that was, I, I'm really going to have to, and you know, tipping our hand for the next question, I'm definitely going to have to go check that out because it's, a, it's an event that I know just by pop culture wise, by common, you know, reference, that was a significant thing, whether or not it was, you know, well received. I know that it was significant and it keeps getting referenced. And I'm just, just having to accept that I don't know everything about it and just roll with it. Um, so I'm definitely have to go to, gonna, gonna have to go check that out. Ted Cord's death, 
um, Jaime getting the scarab and, and coincidentally the powers and, and this satellite that keeps being referenced that uh, really I'm just having to take for face value. Yeah, and you know, I will say a good chunk of Infinite Crisis is quite good. There are some chunks that don't work as well. Jaime does not play as big of a role as all that in the series itself. Um, neither does Ted Court, believe it or not. Actually, his death uh, occurred sort of in the lead up to Infinite Crisis. Um, so the the crossover itself is probably not going to give you uh, the best value there. I will say this, though. The series leans very heavily into the notion of, of legacy, and, and Ted Kord is referenced several times, as is Dan Garrett, the first Blue Beetle. Did did reading the series get you interested in, in those characters in any way? Because I know you're not that familiar with them. Yeah, a little bit. And then also it harkened back to um, our, our episode that we did on friendships, and you talked about the friendship between Ted Kord and Booster Gold. And when he showed up in that um, final issue or penultimate issue, I can't remember which, maybe both um, that really kind of, you know, sparked my interest to do based on our conversation there. And so I, I'm, I'm really interested to, to look into that further. And I want to say, I think there's actually a new mini series getting ready to come out that harkens back to uh, the blue and the gold. I think they're getting ready to do a new mini series of those two characters and their friendship, which I think uh, is always a, a good time actually. Now, how do you think this text will change your reading choices going forward, Chris? Well, uh, I got my DC uh, Universe Infinite, you know, subscription. So I, I want to get my bang for my buck. So um, I definitely, you know, just having that app on my phone and having, you know, that extensive library. Um, I know that after I finish um, TMNT run that I've been working on recently, I'm almost up to current there. I think I'm going to dive into Morrison's JLA based on so many conversations that we've had and so many conversations that I've had with uh, our comics Twitter friends. Um, But I also really, really want to follow the character of Jaime Reyes. Um, I really appreciate the family dynamic. I love his mom. Like she is so dope. Like she's amazing. Um, And then, you know, so whether or not the quality of the run stands up, I still want to follow the story of Jaime because I I really, I really, he's really endearing and I really appreciate, um, you know, he's, he's just a kid and he doesn't even, he hasn't even graduated high school and he's still figuring this stuff out. And he's not, what I appreciate it is, is, it's just like, he figures this stuff out with a lot of spunk and like a lot of practical you know, it's not like Peter Parker or Tony Stark where he's this like wonderkind, like genius. He's just a regular kid and he's still able to to save the day. Particularly, I think my favorite issue was, I believe it was issue 17, when he's saving folks um, from the hurricane or typhoon, or whatever that villain is. Um, that was probably another continuity error, or not a continuity error, but a continuity problem larger universe there's a lot of villains that were popping up that i had absolutely no exposure to as a casual dc fan um but issue 17 in particular was probably my favorite when he's saving folks from that that storm in mexico um and the like they're trying to go to this fancy ritzy hotel and then he calls someone that owns the oil rigs and it turns out to be bruce wayne (laughs) and he completely bluffs and says, you know, these are oil rigs that you let you owned. And then, um, you know, Robin, I'm not sure which iteration of Robin that is, but Robin says, who is that? Uh, and he's like, he lies really well or something like that. And just like, you know, he may not have all the book smarts of Peter Parker or, or some other character that, you know, we, we enjoy, but like he figures out a way no matter what method he needs to use to do what's right and save the day. And the fact that he can override you know, like it, it's a one-off joke in Spider-Man Homecoming um, and then, you know, in Endgame of the instant kill mode for Peter Parker, you know, so it's like one setting. But like that's the Scarab's default setting. Yeah. Like everything is based on like instant kill, fatality. And the fact that his willpower overpowers that, you know, just to go back to the first question, that's probably what I, I love the most about just the heart of this character and how he really you know, like honored his upbringing, 
you know, and, and the things that his parents and his family instilled in him, I thought it was just absolutely beautiful. Like he may not have all the skills and abilities of some other heroes that we love and enjoy to read about, but he figured out a way to overcome all that. So it was, it was just a really beautiful thing. I'll tell you, Chris, I appreciate the fact that you want to follow this character. I still do too, but I'm pretty sure the next series after this one concludes is uh, his new 52 series, which was a complete 100% reboot and none of this stuff that you just read ever happened. And the, char- <laughs> and the characterization slides a little bit into a different direction. And it wasn't for me, let's put it that way. I do have one final question for you, though, since... Uh, I've now given you two homework assignments that are sort of in the same ballpark, the same tone, the same kind of book. If you had to pick between Blue Beetle and Batgirl Stephanie Brown, which one of the two did you enjoy more? It's interesting because as the casual DC observer that I am, I, I feel more comfortable in Gotham. Not not literally. I, I would not feel comfortable <laughs> in Gotham in reality, but but there, you know, it just lends itself to being a bat, you know, affiliated character. But I would probably have to lean with Jaime. Like just you know, studying Latinx culture and just having friends that are, you know, Hispanic and, and Latin American descent. Like it, it just so it rings true to me. Like and I like I said, a lot of those things were kind of like kind of cringy and a little bit off base, but the heart of it really delivered on that family dynamic. And that's something that I, I really, really clung to. And I've really truly enjoyed. And the, and, and the costume design is just, it's, it's pitch perfect. Like it's so cool. Excellent. The eight year old in me was just like geeking out over this costume. Every issue. Yeah, it is, it is absolutely gorgeous. All right. That wraps up our byword big talk for this week. Our homework is finished. I hope we got good grades. After this final break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations. Welcome back for our final segment, Nerd Commendations. Dave, your nerd commendation, I already pre-ordered mine. It's coming on Tuesday. I can't wait. What do you have for us? Oh, man. I love science fiction above all else. Uh, that much, I think, long-term listeners of the Byword know very well at this point. I had a chance to read an advanced reader copy of the upcoming graphic novel, Black Star, by writer Eric Glover and artist Ariel Jovellanos. It is, without a doubt, one of my favorite graphic novels of recent years. The book focuses on an expedition to a distant planet to find a plant that may cure cancer. The ship crashes, and there are only two survivors, scientist Harper North, who is sort of the point-of-view character of the story, and, of course, the team's wilderness expert. With a strong dislike for each other, the two begin to race for the only way off the planet, a one-person emergency shuttle. Whoever gets left behind will certainly perish in the harsh conditions of the planet's summer season. The writing, the art, everything about this book uh, was pitch perfect. The story is an edge-of-your-seat tale of survival, and the way these two characters interact, uh, the history they share, uh, the dislike they have for each other, you know, it is absolutely riveting. How far would you go to live? Would you sacrifice yourself for the greater good? These are the sort of the questions that are thoroughly explored in this book. Jovellanos' art is incredibly expressive. I think that's what I loved most about the art. And Glover trusts her with, you know, these long stretches of dialogue-free pages. And she totally rises to the occasion, telling the story with skill and these just incredible facial expressions that, that really tell the story. I love the expressiveness of these two female characters. You know, Black Star releases on May 11th, and it is absolutely incredible. You know, thanks to the Nerd Daily for getting an advanced uh, copy to me to read. And I will be uh, publishing a full review of the book on thenerddaily.com. But just, you know, I cannot recommend this book enough. There is so much good stuff going on here with this book. It is a big thumbs up for me, Chris. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited. I'm going to be Tuesday. I'm going to be camped by my mailbox because just the cover art alone is stunning um sci-fi is one of the you know the categories of nerddom the corners of nerddom that is nearest and dearest to my heart so i absolutely cannot wait to tear into this on tuesday 
yeah, I think you're really going to like it. And I can't wait for us to, to talk about this and get your take on the story and the art. Just the whole package is really nice. I will also say the physical copy of the book is absolutely gorgeous. It's a little, it's a little smaller than a traditional uh, comic book, but it's hardback. And it has a wonderful dust cover on it that's sort of, uh, you know, embossed a little bit. It's a very, very, uh, physically speaking, a very, very handsome package as well, Chris. Yeah, you can get, I'm looking on Amazon right now. I got my hardcover copy for $22.49 on Amazon. So a great deal. Uh, and, and like I said, I can't wait for it. All right, Chris, you uh, have a recommendation that actually surprised me a little bit. Uh, I, I do want to hear more about the reasoning behind <laughs> this, Chris. Let's go. So I I dogged this particular item two weeks ago, I think. But all right, here we go. Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3, the Black Order uh, for Nintendo Switch. Uh, it's a Switch exclusive. Now, as I've talked about before, particular in that video game episode, I absolutely adored the first game. I really, really enjoyed the second. Um, and the third one left me really, really frustrated. It was... Let's be real. It was the main reason that I bought a Switch because it was a Switch exclusive. Um, so I was really bummed when I found out how difficult this game was. But I gave it another shot. Um, it's still really, really hard. Um, but it was just completely irresistible. The fact that I can play with so many different characters that I love. Um, the storyline was okay. Um I like that it's the Black Order, so it's, of course, the children of Thanos that you would see in Infinity War and Endgame um, with a couple of additions that didn't get featured in the films. Um, I do like the fact that they expound on it. They they include a, a number of Marvel characters that are not in the MCU. Um, and overwhelmingly, it was just the ability to play with my my favorite characters that have little to no interactions in in other, you know, forms of medium. I, I, I could play with a team of Spider-Man, Nightcrawler, Storm, and uh, Thor. And, like, it was just awesome. So um, I will say that I, I heavily suggest um, that you go through tutorial modes, go through those first couple of levels, and kind of get the layout um what i do enjoy and and an aspect that i look forward to to you know flexing once school year's out um it does have a local co-op feature where you can just play with four different um you know character four four different players locally with four controllers you don't have to connect online i know that we've had our druthers and our criticisms of online play which you can do if you're an online gamer online multiplayer do your thing god bless um but I, i'm interested to in roping in my kids you know to help me tackle some of the more difficult ones um i will say that some of the bosses um that proved difficult to me once i went back and revisited they're very like task oriented so for example like the dormammu level gave me a lot of trouble because i was just you know rushing through and trying to smash my way through the level and just bam, 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 trying to, you know, just hit him in the face. But like when I revisited the level, I kind of, you know, watched a couple tutorials and you actually have to collect these orbs and it's kind of more task oriented than just, you know, rushing through. So it kind of gave me, you know, shades of breath of the wild where you have to kind of be strategic about it and not just rush through it. So overall, I really did enjoy the game. It was a definite challenge, you know, with the health conditions that I referenced in the video game episode, it was particularly a challenge for me. I definitely, if you're playing on, well, you are playing on Switch, it's Switch exclusive, <laughs> but um, I highly recommend playing this one on the television. It is not easy on handheld in particular. Um, and if I would imagine that this is easier when you have, you know, somebody to play with you. So maybe that's what they're really gearing towards as well. But um, also they're really pay a lot of attention to um, leveling up and, you know, you know, getting special bonuses for your characters and your team. So I think one of, one of the things I like about gaming and at the same time, I kind of, am kind of, 
rolling my eyes and groaning about. They want you to farm a lot of materials and then level up your characters and things by playing previous levels. That's kind of redundant and, and annoying to me, but in some, some respects it gives me better expertise. So overall, this doesn't sound like a nerd commendation, but overall I enjoyed Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 and I'm looking forward to playing with my kids. It is a very family-friendly game. Um, so you don't have to worry about that. So this is a game that you can throw on with your kids, um, and, and play. It's very family friendly. So I overall enjoyed it. Basically the Marvel fanboy and me won out. Yeah. So I was surprised that you would end up recommending this after the discussions we've had about this game before you've, you've complained a fair amount about it. So I was like, Hmm. Yeah. But ultimately I think you reasoned your way out of this pretty well. You know, I've been playing more and more on my Switch, uh, so I'm looking for new stuff to play. And this certainly looks and sounds more up my alley than the Avengers game with its online game loop. As as you've mentioned, online is not necessarily either one of our cup of tea. So, yeah, I'm interested in giving this a shot. Uh, definitely a summer break kind of game, though, if, if the difficulty is that high. Because, you know, as it stands right now during the school year, it's almost impossible for me to find the time to, you know, get good, as the kids say. Yeah, the biggest, biggest, you know, tip that I could give you is if you can throw something at your enemy, throw something. Um, Also, I was happy to say, and this I found out very quickly, even when I had my my issues with the game, our guy Spidey is really great because he can kind of swing around and still shoot at enemies. But if you're airborne, you take less damage. So that's a really nice thing. And it's his standard combo to just jump up in the air and shoot webs. So you avoid damage and you're dishing out a lot of pain. So Spidey is pretty OP in this game. And I was happy to see that. Well, yeah, yeah, we we would definitely prefer Spidey to be the OP character. (laughs) All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for joining us this week. Be sure to stick around because... The nerdies are coming. We have one more episode before our one year anniversary episode where we are presenting on the best things that we have enjoyed over this past calendar year. Yeah, and that is going to be extremely exciting stuff, folks. So please make sure you tune in. In the meantime, if you enjoy uh, what you hear on this podcast, please be sure uh, to drop us a review and a rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Uh, You can find us wherever podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and our very own website, nerdbyword.com. You can also hit us up on social media on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord. You can also hang with us individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris individually. Also, keep your eyes peeled for the TV trivia pod where I'm making a guest appearance because I am an office trivia god and I flex my muscles. But as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>